Well, life, by its very nature, is untidy. It constantly defies our efforts to control it. We're challenged by it on multiple levels, virtually on a daily basis. Physically, we're clearly not in charge. We're not paying much attention if we think otherwise. Sure, we can take care of the things that we eat or when we decide to exercise, but that doesn't stop disaster and tragedy, cancer and viruses. Emotionally, more, we are more quickly overwhelmed than what we would like to think. Repeatedly, we find things that we thought that we had under control falling through our fingertips, unraveling before our eyes. Even when we feel like we've checked all the boxes and had all our ducks in a row and we're expecting the unexpected, the unexpected still happens. We get anxious and weary stressed and confused. Spiritually, without God, left to ourselves, we are disordered. We don't know where to go. Sure, we can learn things and acquire knowledge, but we will be continually learning and never able to arrive at a saving knowledge of the truth. So what do we do when we encounter the difficulties that this life presents. When we meet questions that feel so massive that we can't wrap our heads around. What do we do when we're perplexed by events in the world that we don't really know what to do or even think or how we should feel? I think our passage in Habakkuk this morning speaks precisely to this reality. If you would open your Bible with me in the pew Bible there in front of you, I think it would be page 786 if you want to follow along there. Habakkuk chapter 3. This is the final chapter as we've continued this time in our summer series in the Minor Prophets, the final chapter of Habakkuk. And as you may remember from previous weeks, Habakkuk is a prophet who writes around 700 years before the birth of Christ. The, the book is a record of Habakkuk's inward struggle and, and this conversation that he has with God. He, he looks around and he sees what's happening in the world and in particular his own nation in Israel, and he's compelled to pick up his pen and write. And so in chapter 1, Habakkuk looks around in the nation of Israel, and, and it appears to him as though evil is prevailing. He writes things like, the law is paralyzed. Justice never goes forth. And so he prays to God and asks him, Lord, how long? How long is this going to take place? Why, why have you not done something yet? 
when then God answers Habakkuk. But God's answer, rather than giving much resolution to Habakkuk's initial question, introduces just simply more questions for Habakkuk. The Lord answers him and says, Habakkuk, I'm doing something about this. And you don't even know the beginning of it. He goes on to explain how he is going to raise up a pagan nation, Babylon, to execute judgment on his rebellious people, Israel. And Habakkuk then responds to God and says, well, Lord, how, how long will this go on? How long is, is Babylon going to keep on pridefully conquesting all of these different nations? How long is Babylon going to continue to do this? Are they going to get left? Are they going to get off the hook? Are you going to do something about them? In chapter 2, the Lord answers and says, I will deal with Babylon in my time. The Lord shows that he will execute vengeance on Babylon as well. And in that revelation of his plan for Babylon, God gives Habakkuk a nugget of hope. And he tells Habakkuk that the one who is righteous by faith will live. The one who is righteous by faith will live. And as we move into chapter 3, I think that very promise that God gives to Habakkuk, I think we're going to see Habakkuk holding on to that promise. We're going to see his prayer and what he sees and says to his own soul in chapter 3. It's going to be a blossoming, a, a blooming of that very promise that God gives him. In other words, in this final chapter, Habakkuk turns out to be a model for us, I think, of living active faith. Faith that waits on the Lord in faith that rejoices in the Lord. Notice one more thing before we get into this passage. We're going to see that God doesn't answer every question Habakkuk has. And, and we're going to see that's just not the way that faith works. Faith in the Lord certainly does answer questions. Following Jesus, though, doesn't mean that he answers every question and curiosity that we have about life. But we can rest assured of this, that he will answer every question we need answered. His word meets our every need, but it may not answer our every question. Well, as we turn to Habakkuk's final response, I think our big idea here is this. On the path of hardship, God's people wait and rejoice. On the path of hardship, God's people wait and rejoice. We're going to take that in two parts. In hardship, we wait in faith, part one. Part two, in hardship, we rejoice in God. Habakkuk chapter 3, verse 1. 
a prayer of Habakkuk the prophet according to Tegeonoth. O Lord, I have heard the report of you, and your work, O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. Habakkuk has one final reply to the Lord after hearing what God will do both to Israel and to Babylon. And his final plea is a simple one. Lord, be merciful. God, remember your mercy. If you were with us in the past two weeks, I think you're going to see a noticeable change in Habakkuk's posture to the Lord. It seems as though in chapter 1 and 2, there was almost this posture of protest. But here, I think we're starting to see the beginnings of a posture of prayerful surrender. Habakkuk has heard fully what God will do, both with Israel and with Babylon. And his only petition is that in the midst of this massive upheaval, that the Lord would remember his mercy. And then picking up in verse 3 through 15, Habakkuk's going to record this vision of sorts. It's, It's an appearance of God himself moving and acting in history. And, And I think the best way to understand this is that Habakkuk is seeing these overlaid images of the way that the Lord has saved his people in the past in order to anticipate what God is going to do in the future. Okay, so he's going to look to the past in order to anticipate God's acting in the future. He, he paints this mural, as it were, of multiple images across the wall, spanning the history of Israel and calling to mind events that Israel would have been familiar with. And he does this in order to stir his own faith and to stir the faith of his people as they wait to cultivate a a hopeful expectancy in what God will do for them in the future. Well, verse 3, he begins to write and says, "God God came from Teman and the Holy One from Mount Paran. So Habakkuk clues us in right away in what he's about to record when he names Teman and Paran. These places for the people of Israel would have been very familiar to them. As they would have heard those names, they would have immediately thought about the way that God led his people after the exodus through these places, Teman and Paran. So so immediately, Habakkuk is reaching back into Israel's history and saying to himself and to others, remember, remember what God has done. Remember how he has acted. But he's not simply remembering sort of for the sake of the good old days. It's not just sort of this nice nostalgia. He's anticipating God to move in a similar way in the future, in in an even greater way. He remembers in order to wait in faith. 
He remembers in order to wait in faith. He continues, he writes of God, his splendor covered the heavens and the earth was full of his praise. His brightness was like the light and rays flashed from his hand and there he veiled his power. Verse 5, before him went pestilence and plague followed at his heels. He stood and measured the earth. He looked and shook the nations. Then the eternal mountains were scattered. The everlasting hills sank low. His were the everlasting ways. God himself as he comes is is pictured in this unapproachable light. And yet even still here, you see and notice that Habakkuk says his power is veiled even still. It's, it's not entirely demonstrated. He goes on to say that pestilence and plague follow him. If, if that description sounds familiar, it should remind you of the Exodus. The way that the Lord himself poured out same words, pestilence and plagues on the Egyptians. The Lord is pictured as standing and measuring the earth. And at his very glance, nations go run into mama. But it's not just the nations, it's nature itself that trembles. The the very structures that were thought to be these eternal, massive monuments, these mountains standing, a, a picture of power, They're just like aluminum wrappers in the Lord's presence. They fall flat. They flee. They're flimsy foil. And Habakkuk says, only the Lord's ways are eternal. Now, there seems to be something of a shift after verse 6. Verse 3 through 6, God sort of pictured as emerging in order to act powerfully for his people, Verses 7 through 15 really shows us what God does and why he does it. Verses 7, he goes on and says, I saw the tents of Cushion in affliction. The curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. Was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was your anger against the rivers? Or your indignation against the sea when you rode on your horses, on your chariot of salvation? You strip the sheath from your bow, calling for many arrows. You split the earth with waters. The mountains saw you and writhed. The raging waters swept on. The deep gave forth its voice, and it lifted its hands on high. The sun and the moon stood still in their place at the light of your arrows as they sped, at the flash of your glittering spear. You marched through the earth in fury, and you threshed the nations in anger. You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. You pierced with his own arrows the heads of his warriors. You came like a whirlwind to scatter them. Rejoicing as if to devour the poor in secret. You trampled the sea with your horses. The surging 
of mighty waters. Well, what's happening here? Remember, Habakkuk's using poetic language here. He's, He's using this language to color a canvas with images. There's sort of multiple images woven together to give an impression of Israel's history. It it doesn't seem to be any specific order, but you can make out many of the events. Up in verse 7, Cushan and Midian are references to nations who oppressed the Israelites during the days of the Judges. Cushan back in Judges chapter 3, and then Midian is later in Judges 8. The affliction and trembling that's described of these two nations, I think is meant to underscore just how transitory, just how brief the pain of God's people would be at the hand of their enemies. Because remember, that's the exact thing that's being faced right here. Babylon is going to come and to judge Israel, but Habakkuk is remembering that their enemies may be there today and used in God's timing for his discipline, but they will be gone tomorrow. Verses 8 and 9, Habakkuk asks the question, why? Was your anger against the rivers? Well, as we go on, we're going to see that the Lord's anger, rather than just being sort of random and towards these inanimate objects is always towards sin specifically, towards the enemies of his people. He pictures the Lord riding on his chariot to deliver his people. And I think this is likely a picture of the Exodus here. Because remember who else was riding on chariots? We see the armies of Egypt coming to devour Israel. They're pressed up against the Red Sea, and they're coming on their chariots. And then what does the Lord say to Moses? He says, I will fight for you. You have only to be silent. I think it becomes more clear in the next verse where He says, the mountain saw you and writhed. The raging water swept on. The deep gave forth its voice. It lifted its hands on high. If if you've ever sort of seen an artistic depiction of the Exodus and Moses and Israel going through the waters, I think what Habakkuk is describing here is the deep lifting its hands up. Right? If, If you were to look between where God divided the waters, it's as if these Huge, long arms are lifted up and the people of Israel go through the waters. Walls of water standing up towards one another. Then verse 11, fast forward, they've gone through the Red Sea and now the sun and the moon stand still. Which reminds you of the time when God holds the earth in place. The days are extended in order for the armies of Israel to prevail over their enemies. So Habakkuk is covering events in Israel's history from exodus to conquest, recounting the power of God working to save his people. Now, if I've lost you, this is a great verse to tune back in. 
This is a summary verse, verses 12 and 13. This is what all of this is about. Why did the Lord appear? Why does he go forward? Verses 12. You marched through the earth in fury. You threshed the nations in anger. You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. So here is the purpose of why the Lord goes out, as well as we get a picture of the way that the Lord goes out. The Lord moves purpose to deliver his people. He goes out for the salvation of his people. And then look at the picture that Habakkuk paints here. He gives us a familiar one. This picture of crushing the head of the house of the wicked. That should rewind us all the way back to Genesis 3. The very first promise that God will deliver his people. He will send a seed from his chosen offspring to come and to crush the seed of the serpent, to slay the serpent himself. And it's that truth, that picture and assurance of that reality that allows Habakkuk to wait in faith. He remembers that the Lord has done this before and he's told us he will do it again. And it's the same for God's people today, isn't it? How do we wait in faith for God? Well, one of the ways that the Lord has prescribed for us to wait in faith for Him is by remembering. We wait in faith by remembering what God has done. I mean, that's one of the reasons that Christians in the New Testament are commanded to gather regularly on Sunday. Every Sunday gathering is this communal remembering, as it were. We come together and we remember what God has done. We remember the cross of Christ. How there, fully, finally, Jesus dealt the death blow to the serpent who is always seeking to devour the seed of the woman. There, we remember that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. That He was buried and on the third day He rose again for us in accordance with the Scriptures. This gathering is all about remembering what God has done for us. Remembering, and it stirs us by faith to wait now. To wait for the promise of His appearing when he will come back again to be with his people. Well, also, he gives us other ways to remember. He gives us his supper. We remember the body of Christ broken for us. We remember the blood of Christ spilled to take away our sins. And through that, we participate by faith. And y'all, we need these reminders. Because of the fall, we all are plagued with this 
spiritual amnesia. We're so quick to forget. We so easily can't remember. And so God, in his kindness, gives us these remembrances, these rehearsals, in order to help us to wait in faith for his final acting for us. Well, in what ways are you tempted to forget what God has done for you, Christian? How can you take advantage of the ways that God himself has given his people to remember? You know, in our living room, we have a portrait. It's not really a portrait. I guess it's just words on a, on a you know, thing that hangs on the wall, but whatever. It's, it's, uh, it's words from the scripture is the point that I'm getting to. And it says this, let us hold fast the profession of our faith. He who promised is faithful. And y'all, when I see that, I need that remembrance. I need to remember. I need the exhortation for my very soul, hold fast. And I need to remember that my reason for holding fast is not because my hands are strong, but because God himself is faithful. We need those reminders. We need God's word around us to remind us wherever we look, the faithfulness of God, how he's acted in the past, and how he's poised to act for his people again. We need to turn our eyes backwards to see what God has done to give us a vision for the future. Verse 16, Habakkuk continues, I hear it and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. And yet, I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon the people who invade us. Habakkuk sees the way that God has worked in the past, and he waits for the way that God will work again. And so as he sees the past, he looks to the future and knows fully what will happen. God will pour out his judgment on Israel he will also pour out his judgment on Babylon. And his posture is no longer one of protest, but of prayerful waiting. I will wait quietly for the day of trouble. In hardship, God's people wait in faith. But not only do we wait in faith, Secondly, in hardship, God's people rejoice in God. Habakkuk knows that difficulty is coming. The Lord has shown him that he will deal with the evil of Israel, but he's going to do so in a surprising way, by sending Babylon to judge them. 
And Habakkuk, as he waits in faith, sees the inevitable. He sees that the land of Israel is going to become desolate. It's going to be barren of resources, barren of conveniences, barren of luxury, and also of daily necessities. And yet, Habakkuk's response is truly astonishing. Look at verse 17. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vine, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, yet... I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer. He makes me tread on high places. We see here Habakkuk listing through items, fig trees, fruit, produce of the olive, each of these things would have been considered fine goods, which Habakkuk sees a day when they are not going to be accessible. They're not going to exist. But he goes on further, not just the luxurious items, but he works his way down to daily needs. No food from the fields. The flock's absent. No herd in the stalls. He sees this time coming of massive lack. And Habakkuk saying, even if all of our blessings seem to be taken away. And many of the things that he mentions here are actually what, what God would have promised Israel as signs of blessing in the book of Deuteronomy as well as Leviticus. If you obey me and keep my covenant, I will give you these things. Well, here he's saying, even if, even if God takes all of those things away, he removes all of the blessings for obedience. No matter what the Babylonians do to us, they can cut down our trees, they can salt our fields, they can slaughter our animals. No matter if there's food on the table, I am resolute rejoice in God. I will rejoice in Him. God is enough for me. Well, what would this statement look like today? Even if there's no peace in our marriage. Even if there's no stable job to be held down. Even if our bank accounts are low. Even if there's no room for vacation. Even if our health is ailing or even if our children are straying. Even if God doesn't give me a spouse when I desire one. I will rejoice in the Lord. 
he is enough. No matter the circumstance, I will trust him. I will praise him. I will rejoice in him. Take everything away. I still have him. You can take my job. You can take my family. You can take everything. I still have the Lord. And I can rejoice in him. You almost hear echoes of Job here. Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Though he slay me, yet I will hope in him. Well, how can Habakkuk say these things? Verse 19, God the Lord is my strength. This is not Habakkuk saying, you know what? I've seen all of this, and I think I've now got it all together. I think I've figured this out for my own. I think in my own strength, I'm going to make it. This is Habakkuk surrendering himself, abandoning his own strength to nothing but leaning on the strength that God himself supplies. He goes on and says, he makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on high places. Y'all, have you ever seen on Discovery Channel, like the way that mountain goats just sort of leap across these jagged cliff edges? I mean, when, when you look at those things with just these sheer rock faces, and they're just kind of bumping along like it's no problem. It's, I mean, seriously, only God could hold them up there like that. Like you're like, the, the only way to explain that is God just moving them along. Well, Habakkuk looks at that picture and he says, look, even though there seems to be no place to set my foot, even though it seems as though one slip would end in an eternal tailspin of destruction, even in those slippery places, God himself provides a sure footing for me. He is my strength. He is for me. And y'all, let me encourage you with this. You may look at the faith that Habakkuk has here and you go, wow, how in the world can I live out an example like that? But y'all, on this side of the cross, 